I like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this special edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. In just the last year, more than 90,000 migrants seeking asylum have traveled to New York, and New York City specifically. And in that time, both the city and the state have struggled to manage that influx. The problem here has been the sheer volume of asylum seekers, all coming here at once. And the cause of all of this is rooted in politics. It was last August that the first busload of migrants arrived in New York City. And at the time, no one really knew how many were coming or what that would mean for New York City. But we did know how they got here. It turned out that Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who is a Republican, had sent the bus directly to New York. See, Abbott wanted to put pressure on Democrats over immigration policy. And because New York City is a sanctuary city, meaning the city government won't share immigration information with the federal government, it became a target for Abbott and other Republicans who want stricter limits on immigration along the southern border. But there's also been a lot of confusion and misinformation about who these asylum seekers are and about our immigration system in general. So to kick things off this week, we're going to break down the different kinds of immigration and how it all works in this new edition of our civic series, New York and. Welcome to New York and Immigration. I'm your host, Raga Justin. As we've said in previous episodes, New York is one of the most diverse states in the country. Take Utica, for example, which is home to a growing number of refugee communities. And then there's New York City, which is one of the most culturally varied cities in the world. But how did New York become so diverse? And what does immigration into the state look like today? Even though we're calling this episode New York and Immigration, we'll also be looking at migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees. And we'll help explain the different forms of international movement into the state. You may be familiar with Ellis Island as an icon of American history. In the 1800s, there was a mass movement of people to the US, largely from various European countries, and New York's harbor was a common port of entry. Ellis Island was established in 1892 to process immigrants coming through the harbor. Over time, the US government decided it wanted to restrict people of certain ethnicities and nationalities from coming into the US in order to prevent the country from getting too diverse. In 1924, the Johnson-Reed Act was passed, which established immigration quotas. These quotas heavily restricted most people from immigrating to the U.S., unless they were from Western Europe. This wasn't the first discriminatory immigration law to go into effect, as other laws, like the Chinese Exclusion Act, had been implemented in years past. But it was a notable victory for those who wanted a closed-door immigration policy. It wasn't until decades later that the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 was passed, which removed the discriminatory quotas. This led to a new wave of international movement to New York, especially in the 70s and 80s. That wave of immigration featured folks coming from all parts of Asia, the Caribbean, Africa, and more. It was these movements of people that helped make New York the incredibly diverse place it is today. Now we're going to take a current look at international movement to New York. We'll start by going over the difference between immigrants, migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees. These terms are often used interchangeably, but there are nuanced differences. Immigrants are people who move to a new country to establish permanent residence. 
In the US, permanent residents have green cards and have to go through a separate process if they wish to become a US citizen. To go over the differences between permanent residents and naturalized citizens, we spoke with Guillermo Martinez of the Rockefeller Institute of Immigration, Integration, Research, and Policy. The main uh, factor differentiating citizenship from a legal permanent resident is the ability to vote. There's been a whole host of um, court rulings at state courts and federal courts uh, regarding the, the rights of legal permanent residents versus the, the rights of uh, uh, native born. Um, so, you know, that gets complicated and there's federal restrictions on if you fall on hard times within the first five years of being an immigrant with a green card in the United States, uh, you really can't access um, the safety net programs, right? Unless you're a child that needs health care, then you, are, uh, you have access to the, the children's health insurance program. Somebody who's here was given a green card and wants to become a citizen, there's a, there's a five-year waiting period. Uh, there's a fee that has to be paid on an application that keeps on getting more expensive, and um, it's over $1,000 now. Permanent residents who want to become citizens also have to demonstrate a basic understanding of English, as well as civic and historical knowledge of the U.S. For migrants, there is no universally accepted definition, but it's often used as a catch-all term for people who are moving long distances for economic or safety reasons, though some like to use migrants as a term to describe people who are temporarily relocating, whereas immigrants permanently relocate. Again, there is not a clear, legal, universally accepted definition for migrants. Asylum seekers in the United States are people who declare the legal right to seek asylum at a border crossing. The U.S. can grant asylum and give a fresh start to those who are fleeing persecution. More on that later. Refugees are given refugee status by the international community, the United Nations, or a state that is party to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Refugees are defined as people fleeing persecution under one of the five protected grounds, which are race, religion, social group, political opinion, or nationality. So refugees are similar to asylum seekers, with the main difference being that refugees already have their status determined before arriving in the U.S., whereas asylum seekers have their status determined after their arrival. This means that refugees are protected from being sent back to the dangerous situation they escaped, whereas asylum seekers, who are not granted asylum, are at risk of deportation. Now that we've distinguished the differences between these terms, we'll take a look at the migrant news stories taking place in New York State during the spring and summer of 2023. It is estimated that over 70,000 migrants have arrived in New York City between the springs of 2022 and 2023. These are people from varying countries and backgrounds, but what many have in common is that they are seeking asylum in the U.S. As a response, New York City began busing small numbers of migrants to other parts of the state, much to the chagrin of some town and county officials who say that the city has not been communicative enough about their plans. Some officials also raised concerns about safety, though it should be noted that studies show that immigrants, both documented and undocumented, commit crimes at a lower rate than U.S.-born citizens. Immigrants, asylum seekers, and refugees are also subject to background checks as part of their legal processes. So basically, we have nonprofits and local officials trying to navigate the process of supplying migrants with housing and basic necessities. Advocacy groups working with the migrants have reported a need for clothing, toiletries items, and extra food. New York City has a contract with a company to take care of food, security, and housing for the migrants, but we don't know if the city will sustain that support in the long term. 
On top of these logistical issues are the legal issues that migrants have to face. Navigating the asylum process and New York's courts is far from a streamlined experience. We spoke with Sarah Rogerson from Albany Law School about what it's like to file for asylum. Certainly you have to assert what's called a credible fear, which means you have to document why you have this fear of persecution, right? Um, credible in the eyes of the government means documented. So you can say that you fear for your life, but unless you can show or prove that that fear is credible um, and factually supportable, it can be tough to make your claim. There's also a one year time limit. So one year from the time of entry, you have to figure out that there's this claim available, <laughs> that what it entails, um, find a lawyer, ideally, um, many people don't, uh, and their claims suffer as a result, um, and identify all of the, the different papers that have to be filed in order to make your claim, um, all within a year of arriving in the United States. There are a lot of different constraints on folks in terms of being able to, it's not unusual for an asylum application to exceed a thousand pages of supporting documentation. That is that is not unusual in these cases. So when you're talking about, you know, um, hundreds of people with these claims, you can imagine what the demand for legal services looks like. In addition to the complicated filing process, asylum seekers cannot work until a set amount of time after their application has been filed. Because of the way that employment authorization works with asylum, the asylum application has to be filed before somebody can apply for employment authorization. And there needs to be a certain period of time that has passed. So it gets very complicated on the um, work permit front such that people might be working for that whole year to get their asylum application prepared and they can't work that whole year and then some after the filing until they're eligible. There's also the issue of the court system being backlogged. As I reported with the Times Union, there are more than 190,000 pending cases in New York's immigration courts, meaning that asylum seekers could be waiting years before getting their case heard. Next, we'll talk about some ways state and local governments play a role in the immigration process. The New York State Office of New Americans was established within the Department of State to assist immigrants with information, referrals to free legal aid, civic education, job coaching, and more. There are local versions of this type of office as well, with the city of Buffalo having their own Office of New Americans, which connects immigrants to informational resources and city services. It also implements policies that assist with integration. Another major aspect of immigration that your local government has control over is their level of collaboration with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, often referred to as ICE. Sarah Rogerson of Albany Law School explains. We're in an era of immigration law and policy that some scholars have dubbed the new immigration federalism, where the federal government still retains control over um, the administration of immigration law. But for lots of different reasons and in, in a lot of different ways, the federal government has ceded enforcement in some ways to state and local governments through certain programs. One of those is the 287G program, which refers to a particular section of the immigration law that empowers state and local governments to coordinate with federal immigration enforcement. In places like Albany City, where the mayor very early on um, in the in the trend of sanctuary declared Albany to be a sanctuary city that's not legally significant in terms of federal immigration law 
But what it does from a state and local perspective is it lets immigrants know, we're not going to ask you for your immigration status when you come and pay your parking ticket or apply for a dog license or you know, um, access any of the city services that we have available to you. Sanctuary cities have been a growing trend in New York State, with cities like Albany, Rochester, and Ithaca identifying themselves as such. There is no true definition or set of requirements for what makes a sanctuary city, so the protection given to undocumented peoples can vary. The general idea is that localities, to a certain degree, can decide not to be involved in immigration enforcement if they don't want to. This is something that your local and county governments can make decisions on, and something you can make your voice heard on through voting and contacting your local officials. Immigrants have and will continue to shape the identity of New York and the United States. With declining birth rates, immigration is a significant contributor to the net growth of the U.S. population. Here is Guillermo Martinez on the economic effects of immigrants in our communities. Immigrants in New York have played a huge role in revitalizing upstate communities. Buffalo, Rochester, Utica, Syracuse uh, had lost in a range of 30 to 50 percent of its native-born population. Without immigrants moving into those communities, those cities would be devastated, right? A statistic I read recently was that out of the refugee resettlement program over the last 30 years, 40% of those refugees have purchased homes in Buffalo, Syracuse, Rochester, and Utica. So they become homeowners, right? So the, that's a huge economic stimulus, right? For your local economy when you're a homeowner, right? Now all the associated costs that comes with being a homeowner, paying mortgages, upkeeping your home, by paying for the plumber, the electrician, the roofer, all those things, right? Um, that's an economic, uh, that's, it becomes an economic engine. For about 4.4, 4.5 million New Yorkers are considered immigrants they contribute um, almost 25% of the gross state product, which is $1.8 trillion. So the economic engine is driven in the state, a, lot, a quarter of it, by immigrant labor, uh, immigrant participation in its economic system. But looking outside of economics, statistics, and policy, it is important to remember that immigrants are neighbors, business owners, friends, and members of our communities who have value simply because they are human and are hoping to achieve the American dream just like many of us. That's all for today. Keep learning, and I'll see y'all later. And we have more from our Civic Series online. Just head to our website and look for New York and. All that and more is at nynow.org. And we'll stay now with immigration. We've now told you about the different kinds of immigration and how that system works. And in New York, you can see this play out right now with the asylum seekers in real time. The city and the state still don't have a long-term strategy to house those migrants while they wait for a decision on their requests for asylum. And because it's so early in the process, those migrants aren't allowed to work either. Some say these issues are just a symptom of a larger problem, an immigration system in the U.S. that's long overdue for an overhaul. And on that point, there are two people with a few ideas. Those are Murad Awada, executive director of the New York Immigration Coalition, and Dr. Dina Refke, who leads the Institute on Immigration Integration Research and Policy at SUNY. We broke it all down at a special panel discussion at the New York State Museum. So I wanted to start with kind of um, immigration in New York 
I think the attitude towards it has changed over the past year because we see asylum seekers coming in. So the, the situation has changed in that regard. Across the US, I think that it's seen differently. So I wanna ask you both first, kind of how you see the attitude towards immigration in the United States right now? And, and we can start with Dr. Refke. Uh, you are right, uh, Dan. There is a, um, there's always been uh, that tension between um, seeing immigrants as uh, assets and welcoming them into our communities with open arms, helping support their settlement process. And on the other hand, there are always forces that see immigrants as vilified, uh, demonized, and um, throughout history, this pattern has been in existence. Uh, people feel um, fear. It's They're acting out of fear um, of limited resources, of changing the status quo, uh, burdening cities and localities, but also uh, people, on the other hand, understand that immigration, or we are Im all immigrants, that uh, welcoming refugees or people who need protection is really part of our ethos and our values as Americans. And um, it is enshrined in our humanitarian laws, in the international laws, and uh, we have an obligation to to welcome immigrants and refugees and, and asylees and provide them with fair, transparent, and due process. Very well said. Murad, what do you think? I agree with uh, Dr. Rifke and think that, you know, if you look at the spectrum of immigration in this in this country, the United States is turning 250 years old in a couple years. And then if you look back, as mentioned, um, at the pattern of history with immigration, you end up seeing that with every ebb and flow of a new population of immigrants, you see the same, it, it's literally stock, it's copy and paste. Um, you see the same, um, anti-immigrant narrative for either community, right? It's not about, I think we have to remove ourselves and think about our global community and how are we showing up in that moment to offset some of this negative stuff that we're seeing um, nationally, but also across the state that just recently we started seeing. As we look at um, this on a much grander scale right now with asylum seekers coming into New York, we don't know how many have come in over the past year. I think you had told me last week maybe 100,000, somewhere around there. It's a big population, and in some ways, we can see this play out in real time, how policy directly affects these people and what we can do to make them feel more comfortable here um, as asylum seekers. Uh, Murad, I want to go to you first on this. Uh, I asked you this last week. How, um, how do you think the state and the city have done with the situation so far? I think... Um you know, we started actually receiving people back, I would say, in March and April directly from the southern border who were being bused initially to Washington, D.C., and then were being supported to come to New York City because that's where their final destination was going to be. Um, and we immediately met with the city and said, hey, this is happening, and um, you might start seeing an uptick in individuals arriving at the shelter system we just want to make sure that the frontline staff understand that these people have, you know, these are their rights and, you know, this is the type of support that they need. Um, and then fast forward to August 5th, we're almost at the, you know, one year mark of the first bus coming to New York from Texas. And, you know, 
between uh, June and August, we asked the city to do three things. One is expand, emergency expand the shelter system, um, invest in emergency legal services, and then invest in uh, community-based supports that will support people in actually becoming self-sufficient so that they're not in need of city support anymore. Um, we got one of the three immediately, which was emergency expansion, and I give credit to the city. Um, one thing I would say uh, on the state level is that, you know, we immediately started advocating to the state when we started seeing the numbers actually increase significantly. And to the credit of the governor, she made additional funding available, right? Um, and that was immediate. And then as we went into the budget season, she made an more money available to support the city in their efforts, but also um, nearly quadrupled immigration legal services funding. And for us to get to this point where we're, we're having that level of investment is a huge victory. I think people are doing the whole, I'm gonna stand back and wait and see what happens and plug in where I can. And that's not the leadership we need in this moment though. We need people to come to the table to actually have really creative and innovative ideas that are going to be outside of the box because this is what the moment calls for and we're not seeing that. Mm. Dr. Refke, I wanna ask you the same question, but also um, can I ask you, in a situation like this where we have a lot of immigrants, migrants, asylum seekers coming to New York, is this kind of the typical thing that happens? Is they come, we scramble, and kind of figure it out? Or are there more permanent systems in place? Or should there be? Yeah, I, I think, Dan, there is really a uh, consensus now that we have a broken system, a broken immigration system. We have a, um, a system of asylum that is not designed to accommodate mass immigration. And it could not accommodate because it's not set up and designed for that. We need an alternative system uh, that really uh, policies that are driven by humanitarian um, need by um, considerations of the dignity and respect for people, and a system that accommodated labor and um, family migration, uh, because we need them. They need us, and we need them. There is a massive shortage of jobs in this country uh, that can only be filled by um, immigrants and people uh, coming into this country, but we are not, you know, we're making them uh, wait for a year to get authorization to work. So uh, we need to fix the system. If we don't, then we're always going to be dealing with this emergency situation. We don't have plans, we don't have systems to accommodate, and we're always going to be really making people more vulnerable and adding to the uh, people who do not have legal pathways to citizenship and settlement in this country. Some people will say that this situation that we're in right now is unique because um, New York maybe wasn't expecting this massive influx of people to come to the state, and that a line should be drawn at some point in terms of offering services or housing people and, and things like that. Um, what do you think of that view of this? Should there be a limit? Should there be a line where we say, okay, we're done? I mean, if we have an emergency plan in place and we have a system that is uh, in those countries of origin really coordinate the passage of, of uh, asylees or migrants uh, from their countries to this country and coordinate that process before they come here, uh, and a system that responds to our economic needs. 
that will avoid the chaos and the vulnerability and the exploitation that we're seeing right now. You know, just from a stick, strict logical perspective, you know, people who make that journey, it's not an easy one. So they're not coming here for anything easy. You know, it, it just, of course they would want to work, you know? Some people say they don't, and of course they would. Um, Murad, I want to go to you kind of from a more of a policy legislation perspective in a little bit, but first, just moving forward as the state continues to respond to this, um, where do you think there are areas, uh, avenues for um, making this smoother moving forward? Is it more housing? Is it just that work authorization, or is it something else? I think it's everything. And I think the bigger piece here is that everyone mistakenly calls this a migrant crisis that we're dealing with when it's not. It's actually the state and the and our different regions in New York have been dealing with an affordability crisis coupled with a housing crisis, right? And we want them to get work authorization as quickly as possible, but also understand that people will work as they see fit to make sure that they're able to support themselves. And people do quickly get a job in the informal economy and then start supporting themselves to rent a room or get a shared apartment and move forward that way. So this is already a community that's illustrating to the general public. We And they've told this to me when I was welcoming buses at Port Authority. They're like, we don't want your help. We want to work. And that was several thousand people. The first thing that they asked for, extremely tired, extremely exhausted, but with a glimmer of hope in their eye of just saying, I just want a job. And that conversation at the State Museum was part of a preview event, highlighting the PBS series Iconic America, which examines national symbols and shares their significance to American culture. The discussion revolved around an episode on the Statue of Liberty and how its symbolism has changed over time, something a lot of New Yorkers don't know about. You can watch that episode of Iconic America and the rest of the series for free, either on the PBS app or at WMHT.org slash Iconic America. We'll see you next week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.